I'm not gonna go. What? Stan's Little League game. I'm, I'm not gonna go. Why? I just don't think I can, all right? You don't think you can? This is the biggest game of your son's life. Why wouldn't you go and support him with- Because I'm scared, all right? You want to break me down? You want to hear me say it? I'm scared! When we were both working from home, um, it was great for me because I was able to do my work and multitask with things around the house. I was able to do laundry and get the dishes done. <laughs> but then once I started going back to the office, Braden mm -hmm. was like, I'm working so much better with you not in the house. <laughs> right. Please leave. With you, with you not doing things all the time. Well, it's it wasn't that. It's that I think because I'm in that dependent stance, when somebody is around, like, I feel like I need to be with that person. Yep. Mm -hmm. And so I can't truly, like, do what is mine to do right. if somebody else is around because I'm like, I need I need to, you know, do what they're doing or at least be near them. Mm -hmm. So where do you see us going? Well, tonight I see us going back to my place. <laughs> Trent, as long as you're up, son. Oh. oh, come on, Pop. You two have fun. You live with your parents? Is that a problem? Hi, Joel and Suzanne. Hi, my name is Art Wimberly. Hi, my name is Lauren. Hey, Suzanne, my name is Brad. Hi, Suzanne, my name is Chelsea. Hi, my name is Mark. Hi, my name is Sarah. Hi, my name is Nicole. Hi, my name is Rachel. And hi, this is Joel, and you are now listening to the Enneagram Journey Podcast with Suzanne Stabile. As you already know, today is a Q&A episode with a very neat twist because we had a special guest drop in at the Micah Center a little early and join Suzanne. Before she talks about vulnerability, some key differences between twos and eights, and how she might handle some tough family situations, I want to tell you about the Enneagram event of the year, from intentional to intuitive, August 4th through 6th in Dallas or online. Suzanne is going to help us discover what keeps us from our Enneagram security number, finding healthy balance between our core Enneagram number, our stress number, and our security number, and utilizing the best of all three by acknowledging fear, anger, and shame, and developing healthy responses unique to each Enneagram number. From intentional to intuitive, August 4th through 6th, in Dallas or online, you can click on the link in the show notes or visit suzannestabile.com slash event slash I2I. I, the number two, I. Intentional to intuitive. You get it. Early bird pricing is going to end on June 1st, so don't miss out on that. And don't miss the event that your journey has been leading you to. And you don't want to miss today's episode, so let's go ahead and get to it. All right, well, we're going to do a little Q&A. If, if anyone hops on and joins us, our friend Amanda said hello from Botswana. So <laughs> Hi, this, Amanda. Yeah, she's been overseas now for a while. A while. So, if you have a question, go ahead and put it in the chat if you're watching here live. Um, and if not, we're trying something new here where I Bluetooth my phone to the soundboard to see if we're going to get our questions. All right. So here is a question from Gwen. Okay. Got it. Hi, Suzanne. Um, I'm an Enneagram two. My husband's a one. We are a couple years into our journey with learning about the Enneagram and ourselves and others. Um, our almost 11 year old daughter, um, 
And a lot of days we feel like she's a one, but there are some days we also wonder about if she is a six. Um, we've got a lot of uh, worst case scenario type situations. Um, one thing in particular that I just wanted to ask your advice on is she, we have a, our middle child, a son is eight and he has um, many food allergies. And the last couple of years, she's really tried to take ownership of those. And we have asked her many times not to do that. Like if somebody brings something over um, that they made, she will ask them over and over what's in it. She'll read the label. Then she'll ask me if I read the label. Um, she'll say, are you sure? She'll go over the top and question um, really our parenting in that and our thoroughness in reading labels and asking questions. And I've asked her to stop doing that and to just allow us to be the parents and allow her to be the sister. Um, but she's continued doing that. I ask her in non-confrontational times. I try to be empathetic towards her feelings, but in the moment, it's a very frustrating thing. I'm wondering if you have any suggestions on how I can handle that. And, um, yeah, thank you. Um, well, I'm going to not do much with us trying to figure out what her number is. Um, you know, I don't really subscribe to that much. Um, I think you're right. She could be an H, could be a six. She could be a one. She could be all, all of those numbers or a two. It would all depend on what her motivation is. The thing that I would offer as a possibility is not, um, don't do this, let us be the parents, but a conversation about why are you inclined to do this and why do you think you need to do this and is there something we can do to help you know that we, we're taking good care of your little brother and we're as concerned as you are. So that's one approach. Another approach might be, you know, um, it's a big responsibility to make sure that everything he eats is okay. And you're so interested in it, we're going to really kind of give you that responsibility sometimes. And then put it on her when she doesn't want to do it. <laughs> like, uh, you know, when you're at the grocery store and she wants something, or at a restaurant and she wants to order something, then put that on her. Well, now we need, why don't you check the ingredients and you check and make sure that it's good and safe for him you check it and let us know if you have any concerns, and then we'll look over it. And, you know, she probably isn't going to want to take that responsibility on. It's not nearly as glamorous as co-parenting. I would also suggest that uh, children who are aggressive numbers help parent. But uh, Enneagram 2s also help parent for a different reason. And... Um, so for a one, the motivation would be, this is a black and white question. It's right or wrong. It needs to be checked. I love my brother, and I'm going to check it. Um, another motivation could be, I think this is a burden for all of us as a family, and so I'm going to help with it. Another motivation could be, I'm not sure I trust mom and dad to do this right, and I love my brother, so I'm going to check it. And until you know what the motivation is, which you might get from the conversation if you ask the questions, why do you think you need to do this instead of us, it would be hard for you to put it with an Enneagram number. 
another, I don't know what motivation our boy has, but Jace loves to try to on occasion parent Josephine. Yep. And Jace is uh, eight and Josie's three. I'm just like, hey, we say all the time, both of his, both of her parents are right here. You don't need to do it. And I, I wonder with him, because he gets parented so much. Yep. Where he's like, I just get the opportunity to pass it on to try to parent. Yeah. So it definitely, I don't, again, who knows his Enneagram number, but the motivation being different yep. is. Yeah, that's key. Yep. Be aware. I was unaware. Our oldest, Joey, is an eight. And until she became an adult and we talked about the Enneagram and her childhood, I was unaware of how often I handed off parenting moments to her. And then she kind of got in the groove of that, and then I tried to take them back. Well, like, I don't, I'm here and I'm a parent, and I'm sure her thought bubble was, well, you were here and being the parent last week when you asked me to do ABC. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, I think some good conversations around, why are we doing this instead of don't do this might be helpful. I like that. I always, and that's something I know personally, I can fall into that trap of just saying things instead of asking questions. It's just so much better. Even if you already know the answer yep. or, or if you don't care what the answer is, yep. but it's just a better way of letting them talk for at least a minute before, before. Yeah, you know, dad's been saying for years and years, you can teach a lot more by asking questions than you can by making statements. Well, we got another question then. Great. We'll see what I can learn. Hi, Suzanne. My name is April. I'm a type four. Um, and over the last two years, I've spent a lot of time in my stress number of two um, during that period, I was foster parenting one of my siblings' children, who is a very young child with special needs. Um, the placement happened, it was, a, it was an emergency situation, it was shortly before the pandemic and before we knew that was coming. And um, so it has ended up being a very, very stressful couple of years. Um, you know, spending time in two centered on someone else's needs, um, as well as um, trying to care for other family members in this situation. Um, and now that experience is ending, my niece is moving on, and I'm having, of course, a lot of complicated feelings. Um, grief for her and for myself, as well as resentment and anger toward family members, um, and just feeling really lost and very, very depleted by this experience. And I am worried that um, I'm going to have a really hard time moving forward and that I'm going to get stuck in all the thoughts and feelings and the what ifs and, um, I would just appreciate any wisdom or advice you have, um, specifically for a four in that situation. Um, spending so much time in two, I feel very disoriented and depleted. Um, thank you for your podcast. That's a lot. That's a lot. Uh, that's just a lot. I can't imagine, like, right before the pandemic yep. taking in and then the pandemic happening. Mm -hmm. And family stuff is so messy in the best of times, under the best of circumstances. Um, I'd like for everybody to learn from this question because people ask me all the time, can you stay in stress? or in the number that you move to in stress for a long period of time. And yes, I've always said yes. Here's a perfect example of a couple of years of a lot of time spent in the number that you go to 
and stress, which was probably necessary space for you to take care of your niece and do this well. I obviously don't know the whole story, and I respect that you didn't have the space or want to share it. I'm not. I just want to give the caveat that I don't know the whole story. I think the most important word you used in terms of what you're concerned about for yourself is that you will be depleted. And my suggestion is that you already are depleted and you're naming it. it and I, what I hear you saying, right, right or wrong, and I could be wrong, but what I hear you saying is I've given myself to this. It didn't end like I wanted it to. It isn't uh, ending up the way I hoped it would, and yet that's out of my hands. And I hear what I hear is that you are depleted, not that you're afraid you're going to be depleted. And from that place of being depleted, how do you go back into the complexity of foreness without this too concern about others, which has its own energy and its own buoyancy, actually, at times. And so I think what you do is you uh, mark the time with about three months where you're going to do some very intentional self-care and some things to take care of yourself. And, you know, I'm a big believer in everybody needs a therapist and everybody needs a spiritual director, and I know everybody doesn't have that, and lots of people surely don't have both. I really believe, based on the intensity of the experience, and with that being a little piece of a much larger, intense experience during COVID, that you would do well to get somebody to walk with you in a therapeutic way for the next two or three months till you sort through your feelings and find your way back into four space so that when you get back there, you can be back to being uh, whole and creative and uh, aware of all the texture and color in the world. And uh, you've done a lot for somebody else. And now's a good time for you to do a lot for you. I don't think anybody questions the authenticity of things that you and the Reverend teach and say over and over and over again. One of the things that I found interesting, we're getting ready to put up the cohort applications today or the spot to apply. And LTM is a new cohort this year with you and Andy Stoker on family systems and the Enneagram. It's called the family systems experience cohort. And one of the things I was asking you all, hey, what questions, what information do you want from the applicants? And Andy, one of the things that he added on there was, are you currently seeing a therapist? Yep. And one of the recommendations as people who get into this cohort, as they go through it, one of the strong, hey, during this time, you need to be seeing a therapist. That it's not just, it's not just something you say, you'll support it. I want to use the word microcosm and macrocosm, but I don't ever know which one's the littlest. Micro, macro. Okay. She has a an experience that is very intense, and it's the micro. Micro. Of the macro, which was a very intense experience. I'm not terribly concerned about those of us who haven't had really tragic loss of a job 
or death or, you know, I, th- I think there's some pretty tragic loss in the background of this story, but I can't know that. But everything has to be looked at in the context of a pandemic. Everything. And I don't think we know how much ambiguous loss there was in the pandemic. Like, I got up early today and got a lot of stuff done. I was really tired from the weekend, but I rested. And I got a lot of things done, and I went to run an errand before I got here, and I had everything I was supposed to have for you when I got here, and I was here early. It's all, a good day. It is a good day. All the, all the. And it's because I'm beginning to get back the energy I'd lost and the stamina. I lost a lot of stamina. I was writing a book for half of it, so I was just in my office in my chair writing. And it takes time to come back from all of that. I think we need to be really mindful and really good to ourselves. All right. This next question is from uh, Laura, who's watching right now. Uh-huh. And I think it is serendipitous. I don't know that we asked that previous question. And now here's her question. Okay. I'm going to reset it. My 39-year-old daughter, a six on the Enneagram, and two children left an abusive husband and moved back home with my husband and I. We retired and in our 60s. I'm a two. My husband is an eight. Our daughter has been in therapy, but she is so broken. Our house is small. We have one bathroom, and this is so hard on all of us. The children are ages six and nine. Any help you can give us would be appreciated. Wow. I know. Wow. That's just so hard for every single person involved. It's very complicated. So, first of all, I'd like to uh, tip my hat to your generosity. It's a big change to have an adult child move in with two children into small space when you're in your 60s. And it's necessary when you need to see to it that your daughter and your grandchildren are safe. I don't want to be cavalier about this answer. But the answer is going to be boundaries, 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 boundaries. So I would start by saying, I hope all of the chores in the house are divided among all five of you. It would be a tendency for you as a two to just wear yourself out doing for people what they can do for themselves. And before you start assigning chores uh, or allowing people to choose chores, and I'll tell you about that in a minute, the thing that you need to establish is that uh, you're glad they're with you, you're going to offer all that you have to offer, and it's your space, and they're going to have to honor the way you live in your space meaning they've got to go by your rules, whatever they are. And they don't have to like them. They don't have to be the rules that your daughter's going to have when she has her own home again. But they're in your home and in your space. they got to go by your rules. So that's, that's number one boundary to put up. Number two is I would encourage you to write down all the things that have to be done in a week to help the five of you get through the week as effectively and efficiently as you can. And then you have people choose chores that they're going to take responsibility for. And everybody chooses. The children, everybody chooses. And then those chores, too, have to be done the way you and your husband want them done because they're in your space. Shared space doesn't become somebody else's space. It's still your space, 
and you're sharing it with somebody else. I'm glad to know that your daughter is in therapy. I would suggest that when things get difficult for you and your husband, you invite yourselves into a therapy session with her and her therapist uh, so that you have a place to work through things. Because when somebody's broken, to use your language, and mine, I'm not, I'm not saying that's bad language, I'm just saying it's the language that you used. When someone is broken, um, twos have a tendency to protect them and eights have a tendency to challenge them. And so I would guess that some of that's going on. It's very tricky. It's just a, it's a very, very tricky situation. Well, that's one of the questions I have for you around this. And I don't know if this is a question that she may have also. You know, we've talked about when big things such as the pandemic, but let's throw the pandemic out, even though that still happened. This big event and big life change, and you've got a, a two, an eight, and a six. And all numbers can be a compl- complicated dynamic and whatever. But let's just, two, eight, and six yep. is interesting. Ugh. And then when you're a two, eight, and six with stress moves and potential subtype changes in a small space yep. with these core relationships, what are, what's some broad spectrum advice, not specific to two, eight, and six, of how to love one another when I bet – I would imagine it's kind of obvious, man, things we're changing and we're not like we normally are and we're in this space and how do we love each other and while this shift is occurring. Mm -hmm. You have to give yourself permission to feel what you feel. And two things can be true. And you can want your daughter and your grandchildren to be with you so that they'll be safe and so that they can rebuild their lives and be on their own again. And at the very same time, you cannot want you cannot want your daughter and your grandchildren to be living with you. It's okay. Both of those feelings are okay. And we don't give ourselves permission to say, I don't want them here. I don't want to live with them anymore. I, I lived with kids. I'm done. I don't want to do it anymore. And when you don't say those things, that kind of, uh, you don't have to say it to your daughter and your grandchildren. Just say it out loud to each other. Because when you don't say those things, that feeling comes out sideways in something else. Because the feelings are there. I think you need, in your context, and I don't know any of the details other than what we've been given, but you need to put a boundary on how long they're going to be there and on what goals need to be reached for them to not be living with you. Without those goals to work toward, then forever becomes hard to carry and likely not a reality. And when you know you have six months, you can do six months. You can do anything for six months, almost. When you know you have, you know... you. But you need to put some boundaries on, this is how long we feel like we can do this. How can we help you be independent at that moment? How can we prepare for that with you now? I just want to say, that's very complicated and hard for everybody. 
And I think one more thing that would be helpful, because to specific numbers, is be sure that you identify the difference and that you get your daughter to, to speak to the difference in fear and anxiety. Because anxiety is concerned about possible future events. And fear is about what's happening right now. And I, I think y'all need to consistently figure out what you're talking about, fear or anxiety. Because sixes have anxiety for all of their lives. That's not going to go away. And what you're trying to heal and alleviate for the future is fear. Well, even when you were talking a minute ago about uh, two things can be true Mm -hmm. and I can be happy that you're here and want to take care of you and, and all the things. Mm -hmm. And I'm also bummed, you know, we're, we're really enjoying being in our sixties together in an empty home and, and we don't want to share the bathroom with three other people. Yeah. Yeah, the old feelings wheel right there of just kind of tossing that around. Like it's, it, you can have two things be true at once and, you know, fear and anxiety are not the same thing. And just having that open dialogue of, of articulating it instead of one, making the assumptions that the other people know it mm-hmm. and two, just not saying it. And then, like you said, it coming out in so, other ways, sideways yeah. and adversely. Oh, if I have one more thing to say. Okay. Um, don't let this get between you and your husband. How you handle it can, for a two and an eight, how you handle this can easily become a problem for the two of you. So do whatever you need to do to not let that happen. And that should be the number one priority. Yeah. All right. We got a question here from Heidi. Hi, Suzanne. My name's Heidi. I've been on the journey with the Enneagram for about four years, a little less time than the age of my oldest child. So I learned the Enneagram as a brand new mom. Uh, The description of a two seemed to fit me, and my family agreed. Um, But now, in the past six months, I've been doing a lot of self-observation and asking the Lord to help me live in the reality of who I really am. So I'm starting to think I could be an eight. And as I learn about eights and pay attention to myself, there are several pieces that fit with my core motivation, which I don't like to believe that one of them is fear of betrayal, but I'm starting to see that it's an almost fully buried motivation for my need of control. One of the other pieces I see in myself is the defense mechanism that eights are prone to, which is denial. And I'm suddenly painfully aware that I have done this for a long time, especially in regards to how something makes me really feel in the moment and denial about situations that I don't have control over. So my question is, Can you talk a little bit about eights, especially female eights, who might rather be seen as twos, and also about their defense of denial? Thank you. I'm sure going to (laughs) try. So um, you said you had, you learned the Enneagram uh, just shy of four years ago. Uh, You were a new mom. Your oldest child had been born. That indicates to me that you have two children or more. Probably not more than two, but maybe. Um, So if you have two children under four and you're a two, then you spend a lot of time in eight because it's stressful. It's just stressful. So I want you to think about that. Am I, do I spend time in eight because I'm stressed? 
Do I behave in ways that are eight because I'm stressed? Because I'm a young mom with two kiddos. Um, remember that eights go to two in security. And so your family could have believed that you were more like a two when you first learned it because you were secure. And you had spent a lot of time in good, happy two space. I doubt if that's the case, but it's possible. Eights don't usually stay in, in two space for very long. It's like they dip in there for a minute and think, yeah, no. I like that you've done the work you've done around denial and betrayal. So I want to talk about betrayal first. And the question is, are you worried about betrayal or are you worried that you're not going to be wanted? Because those are two very different things. I don't think people are going to betray me. I have experienced betrayal in my life, so it's not that I'm unfamiliar with it, and it's not that I haven't experienced it, but that's not what I worry about. I don't worry that I'm going to be betrayed. I worry that I'm not going to be wanted. So if you're worried about betrayal, that's eight. If you're worried that you're not going to be wanted, that's two. And they look a little bit alike and feel a little bit alike, but they're pretty different. So work on that. My daughter, Joey, who's doing a lot of Enneagram work now is professionally. That is her profession now. And she has come to believe through her study and work that um, sixes are the most controlling number on the Enneagram, but that ones, twos, and sixes in the dependent stance are quite controlling. And so... The question in relationship to you being in control, and, and I have come to agree with her. I forgot to say that. I guess I had a hard time looking at that because I'm a two, perhaps. <laughs> and because ones, twos, sixes, and eights are controlling in very different ways. So here's what I want you to think about between two and eight. Twos want to control other people. Eights want to control the situation, and those are completely different. That's big-picture thinking and little-picture thinking. So do you want to control the whole situation? Like, do you want to control the scene, or do you want to control the people in the scene? So that's a good place for you to work from. And don't... Being either number is going to be a great outcome for you because you're working so hard to be healthy. So don't feel like or think that one of the two numbers is better than the other. They're different. They're very different. And they, I think, share a line on the Enneagram because of that difference. It helps them find balance and movement between the two numbers. It's pretty great to be either number if you can be in high average or healthy in your number. So that's what I would offer. There's a lot there. I think if you work with it, you'll, you'll figure it out. Yeah, it seems like she's got a lot going. Yeah, she does. She's doing her work. Okay, we've had a question here from uh, the live chat with Michael. I'm a facilitator of an Enneagram Journey group. We're now halfway through the journey toward wholeness after using the basic Enneagram Journey curriculum last year. I'm stunned how deep our sharing is as we come to a greater understanding of the Enneagram principles and concepts. What can we do so that we don't flee to just concepts and lose the sharing? Our group is a one, a two, a three, a five, a six, and a nine, and I'm a three. 
small anagram groups are just the best, by the way. Let me huge fan, huge proponent. You got to meet one of the groups that just wrapped up. Yeah. Uh, this morning, this morning, he wants your answer, but I would say just as someone who's had several of these groups and one that we're going on probably 18 months now of meeting, a meeting weekly that it's as time goes by and you get to know the same people like our partners and spouses and friends don't join in. Like it's still the same group, no matter what we do. If we did so one of the things that we did after the first curriculum was the path between us study guide. And just because it was about relationships, we didn't bring new people in. Sure. And I think it's just one of those things that time and trust keeps that going. It's like a spiritual formation group. You can't add people to a spiritual formation group that started and established. So that'll be one key to continue to go deeper. It's just don't add people. Yep. What else? You know, so we'll have a, an agenda for something like, all right, we're doing the journey towards holding the study guide. But also, you know, we've had events come up that they've, most of them have attended. So then we'll talk about the events or people will share. Someone had a big move to Utah and, you know, they talked about all the things that they got to do with that. And then when we can talk about the real life scenarios, then that's the real life application of the concepts. And so it's going deeper with the concepts. Well, stay in this conversation with us. But one thing I would say is that deeper, the farther along you go, deeper doesn't feel like deeper like it did in the beginning. Yeah. It's like deeper becomes the water you swim in. So now that you're in the deep end of the pool, it doesn't feel as deep as it used to, but it very likely is. The learning curve is different. It's just like, well, here we are now. And the group uh, evolves. I mean, it's still the, it yeah, it's not a good group if y'all are still. Yeah. I'm sorry, I'm not taking a shot at people's groups. Right. I would not want to continue a group mm-hmm. for X amount of time if we're still talking about the same concepts right. from the Anagram Journey curriculum. Right. The point of the curriculum is for those 10 weeks, those 12 weeks. And then it's the journey's supposed to go on to yeah. what he to what Michael's talking to. Yeah, exactly. Check yourself. Do you just want it to feel deep like it used to feel deep when it really is a deeper conversation? Second thing is, um, part of what I used to misunderstand as a lack of depth in groups that I've led or been a part of is when the same problem kept coming up over and over. But that's life, and that's Enneagram business right there. And whatever you struggle with, you're going to always struggle with it. It's just going to be dressed a little different and look a little different and present itself a little different. So threes tend to accomplish and move on and accomplish and move on. And since you're the leader of the group, you're probably ready for some of this to be, all right, well, like we've been talking about your relationship with your next-door neighbor for all this time. (laughs) Surely we can move on from that. And so I think you begin to ask questions, and you'll know what they are, that lead people into... It might be the same answer, but from a deeper place with a deeper response. Um, And the way that works, as it turns out, is that you have to have um, a a way of being um, patient 
as a three? Yeah, but just move Sit right the, there. Yeah, just move, move the there. feelings. That shouldn't be a problem. I'll be getting you a microphone here in a second. So yeah, and then we'll all be doing this together. We're on. We are. We're on. Ladies and gentlemen, the Reverend Doctor Andy Stoker <laughs> is in the house. He's in the house. That yeah. Okay, okay, Reverend Doctor Andy Stoker. As soon as you get a microphone, I've got a question for you. All right, you keep talking. Give me a couple minutes. Give me a minute to yeah to mic him up. I am in the middle of answering a question. Yes, it's a very important question. Okay. <laughs> so the question is, uh, they've done the Enneagram journey, and and then now they're doing the Journey Toward Wholeness study guide, our book, and they're not as deep as the leader would like. It doesn't feel quite as deep as it used to. So I'm in the process of saying, and you can contribute as soon as you get a mic, that I, I think depth looks so different once you um, begin to tread water more slowly. Depth doesn't mean that you don't have the same problem you had the day you started the Enneagram journey. Same problem, it's just different. The gift of a three leading a group is that it doesn't get bogged down and lots of things get handled and done and, and the Potential drawback of aggressive numbers leading a group is that the group doesn't move as fast as you might want them to. So what do you think? I had Michael, a, we're talking to Michael. Oh, we're talking to Michael. Hi, Michael. Uh, Michael's not going to talk to you. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Uh, so I had a an amazing conversation this morning with my professor uh, during the whole course of my PhD work, who also happened to be the personnel chairperson at the church I was serving at the time. Oh, tricky. I mean, interesting. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> and we became very, very close friends. Um, and, uh, and so she wanted to catch up. She'd heard some rumors about what was going on and that kind of thing. And they were uh, all true. <laughs> they were all true. <laughs> right, right. Um, wh one of the fun rumors, actually, just to interrupt myself, was that I have a PhD in art history and that I'm going to Paris, France to activate my PhD work in some way. I was like, ooh, that's a fun rumor. I wore my shirt that has <gasps> Paris on it, but I, I, I didn't know we were telling people. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> So she was giving me all these rumors, and then, so I told her a little bit about where I was, how I ended up during COVID, what I felt called and compelled to do, uh, to deepen my own spirituality, and, uh, and she said, well, it sounds like you grew out of the church. And I said, well, Lillian, can you say more about growing out of the church. Remember, my PhD is in child development and family science. <laughs> so I think she always sees me as a child. child. <laughs> Since you're a seven, you know, it. it's easy. It's easy. I it's mean, I don't know what to say, except it works. <laughs> so um, airs, the poo airs and the poellas of the Enneagram right there. <laughs> there you go. And she said, um, you know, we never stop growing. And sometimes we can grow up in things and grow out of things equally. Yep, exactly. So I don't know if that 
was a dovetail into what you just ended on with Michael, but it, it resonated for me and something I needed to hear from someone who made such an impact on my life uh, for so many years and, and continues even today after being. It's interesting because it kind of came full circle and you weren't here for Joel's answer. And Joel's answer was, if you're not growing deeper, then if you grow out of, then that's a, that's a group dynamics discovery. Andy, what you said, I think this fits perfect. I drew a little image here on my remarkable, but, uh, are we looking for sponsorships? <laughs> they can have Joel and me. We love On my remarkable, remarkable too so here. I've got my, my image. That Gosh, people it's can, the new one, too. Mm, oh, it changed my stories. life. It is changing my life. And I don't know how to do anything but, yet except write. But of, you know, we, we keep kind of talking about water. and yep. the, you know Depth of the water. And when the depths, like, we're supposed to grow. So it's kind of like a person, a person growing, the water level staying the same. And what you were saying, Suzanne, about it, it not feeling like the same depth yep. because you've grown. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know, but I want to be careful that Michael doesn't hear us say, Oh, your group's done. <laughs> Cause no, we're not no. saying that. No, 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 no. We're just saying there are a lot of different ways to look at and measure growth in a group. The, the other thing I would say about that is that I think coming out of COVID, if mm. we are, whatever, yeah whatever we're doing that's different than what we were doing. I think it's kind of exhausting for all of us. And I think we're tired. Mm-hmm. And so it takes more energy. I don't think we show up to anything with the energy that we did two and a half years ago. Yeah. And we're just, I talked about it earlier, we're just now getting back into the rhythm of a, a week schedule and getting up early in the morning and, getting chores done on your way to go do other things. And it's just going to take some time for energy to find its way. I Mm -hmm. think just energy. And we're, we're exiting COVID. We're, we're using air quotes here, everybody. Uh, We're, we're, we're exiting COVID into a hybrid situation. Yeah. So I'm, I just had breakfast, a zoom, a phone call, a lunch. I'm sitting here with you. We're, we're talking to folks, I mean, yet again, another hybrid. Then we have a face-to-face meeting after this, and then I've got a Zoom at 3.30. I mean, so what, how am I spending my time? And as a human being, how am I showing up? It takes a different energy to sit here with you it, face-to-face than it does on Zoom. Yep. Oh, and then we have a dinner tonight. So then we've got to be up for a different kind of yep. engagement. We have a dinner tonight, too, with yeah. a board member. Okay. So it's, it's like I'm free. dinner with a board member <laughs> is not eat. the same thing as dinner with you or you. I can eat dinner. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah where are we going? Uh, I don't know where you're going to dinner, but if it's not really good, Joel would pick mine. <laughs> I'm so happy you're here, and I'm so bummed you weren't here, uh, I don't know, 20 minutes ago. Oh. Because we had two great questions about family moving in with family for, oh, for different yeah. reasons and the stuff around that. And Suzanne did a great job and you would have added so much as well, which now it's just getting me more, more excited. They're going to think that this was all just a ploy to plug mm-hmm. the family systems experience cohort. It's not <laughs> Andy's early. We had a meeting after this yeah, and this is great, but <laughs> just the combination of your, your two answers for these kind of questions 
and your two um, knowledge and information and questions that you'll ask, et cetera, around this stuff. It's just going to be so gold. Anyway, uh, let's get to another question here. We've got yeah, two more. We got two more questions. I'm left. wondering what people are going to think because you know all the stuff that we're putting up about our cohort. Do you have a therapist? Have you had a therapist? Yeah. We suggested you get a therapist. Yeah. I've never had to put that up before, just so you know. I've always said to people, I think everybody needs a therapist, yeah. but we didn't put it in writing. In writing, yeah. It's not on the checkbox. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it. I mean, it, to, the questions I missed earlier, I, it is always good to have a professional engaged in your family life at some point. Absolutely. Um, and by, by family life, I mean individual as, individuals as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, because we carry our families with us yeah. everywhere we go, and they have to carry us with them everywhere they yeah they, yeah they go right yeah I'm such a proponent for therapy. There's no way to talk about it more more readily or we need some therapy stock. Uh, <laughs> How do we do that? Do we? <laughs> <laughs> All right, we got a question here from Jessica. Hi, Suzanne. This is Jessica. I'm an Enneagram 9. I have a question for you, particularly about how 9s and 3s um, share that line and how their behaviors can be similar. Um, the, the question that popped up for me when I was listening to Jamie Bowen share her story on the podcast, um, she just said a number of things that I thought, oh my gosh, that's exactly how I felt about kind of life as a mom. And I wanted to understand what that is between a nine and a three, but I know I am not a three. I know I don't have that aggressive energy and confidence and future orientation to time. So anyways, the two pieces that she talked about were number one, um, taking time when she's with her kids to be in the moment because often she feels like she's spinning, just trying to get tasks done. I've used that exact wording to describe my life with my kids. And then number two, when she talked about when she first had her newborn baby feeling like she needed to perform or act a certain way with the people in the room. That was exactly how I felt when I had my firstborn. I wasn't sure how to react because all the people were in the room with me and I felt like I needed to behave or have certain emotions because they were there. I needed everybody to leave so that I could really figure out what my emotions were around that experience. I was just hoping you could help me explain that. Thanks. Bye. That's a lot. I'm trying to decide where to start. I'm going to start with uh, being in the room with a newborn and other people. One of the things that people are most likely to do in life, if you say that you're having surgery, they tell you about theirs and how it went or their neighbor and how it went or their down-the-street person and how it went. Like It's just ridiculous, as if everyone was going to be the same. Second thing is that things that people love to help you with are parenting. And they learn as you get older that you, as, as your children get older, that really that's very dangerous territory. Don't tell other people how to parent their children. That's just a problem. But because they can't do it everywhere and they're inclined to, they really focus in on newborns. And because having a newborn is... I don't know if I'm supposed to hold the baby this way or this way. I don't know if I'm swaddled right. I don't know if to hold it in my left arm or my right arm. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And you feel judged constantly, just constantly. And so that is stressful. So as a nine, that would mean you would go to six where you're unsure of yourself and where you feel like you're spinning to get everything done. So that would be... Um, 
a stress move and not a security move. The move to three uh, in that exact scenario, in the moments when you, the baby's beautif- beautiful and perfect and you've got her or him held just correctly and everything's just right, then you're suddenly thrust into three mode and the quiet thing that you're not saying is, I've got this and everybody knows it. Like I'm holding the baby just right. And this is the most beautiful baby of all babies represented in the room. And I, I've got this. And then the baby starts crying for no reason and you're back in nine. And then you go to six and then you go back to nine. And then you go back to three. And that's just the triangle of all of the stuff that goes with a newborn. I would say that you always have to think about motivation when you're dealing with nine and three. And just remember that when nines go to three, it's when they're in a comfortable space, habitat, where they know all the rules and they're trained and prepared to be in that space. So Andy and I are here together. We'll give you an example. Joe Stabile is a nine on the Enneagram. And if you didn't know that, and you only saw him on the day as during worship, you would sit in the pew and say, that guy's a three. Mm-hmm. Like there's not a hint of any number other than three when he's in that element doing his thing. Yeah. Yep, like, that's right. No question. I think that nines are so concerned about internal and external conflict that there's so much grace in that time that they get to spend in three where they're just sure of themselves and not worried about a thing. It's like it's just a mystical piece of grace that comes in the Enneagram that's, here you go, Mm -hmm. and you get to have this. I don't know, Joel, is there a part of the question I didn't address? Do you know I got lost in memories of... That all sounded sounded good to me. Good. Yeah. Good, good, good. All right, we got time. Amanda asked a question here, and I mean, since she's joining us from Botswana, I think we have to answer it. I think we do. Yeah, it's a good thing. uh, What advice would you give to an eight that is desperately wanting to lean into vulnerability in a relationship, but is terrified at the same time, recognizing that we talked about earlier, that two things can be true? I think every Enneagram number that leans into vulnerability intentionally is terrified. Having said that, I think eights are terrified in an eight way. But I think what you're terrified about is betrayal, not vulnerability. I think you're worried that your vulnerability in maybe 3% of you or 10% of you thinks it may not be well placed. And what if you're betrayed? And sometimes I think we ask the wrong question. I think we are we name the wrong thing that we're afraid of. I think we're all afraid of vulnerability and we all desire vulnerability at the same time. And so is your condition, your, I don't know how to say this word, your whatever it is, uh, your disposition, are you really afraid of vulnerability or are you afraid of what will happen if you're vulnerable? Because that's two different things. Now, you guys are all about no vulnerability, so why don't both of you contribute? I wouldn't say we're all about no vulnerability. You mean (laughs) (laughs) K-N-O-W? N-O. 
is one is it is it true to say that as an eight and being future oriented and seeing betrayal in the future that what it is it, you know you can't just be like be in the present moment but it is finding that balance of you can't feel betrayal in the present moment when it's not happening i don't know exactly what i'm saying well i'll help you a little <laughs> So since you're in the deep water, yeah, yeah, I'm, 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 I'll draw a new image on my remarkable. So. Same old remarkable, new image. Um, the water has risen. Uh, well, see, when I get into that deep water, when I get in that vulnerable space, I'm not afraid I'm going to be betrayed. I'm afraid I'm going to not be wanted. Yeah. And y'all are afraid your needs are not going to be taken care of. Correct. It all goes back to the childhood message. That's what you're afraid of. Mm-hmm. And we're all afraid of it in vulnerability. It's just that eights have the illusion. I hate to say to somebody in Botswana that they have an illusion. <laughs> it's They're in Botswana. It's not the first one. I'm sorry, Amanda. <laughs> uh, the thing is, though, you live with the illusion that you're in charge of when you're going to be vulnerable. That you choose vulnerability. And if you think over your life to this minute, you know better. There are just times when you're vulnerable. You didn't want to be, you didn't plan to be, and you are. And you need to look at those times and see that you did just fine. And you'll do just fine in this vulnerability. And I I think you ought to lean into it knowing that you can take care of yourself. And if you don't lean into it, then it's always going to be right there on the edge, so it'll keep you from any kind of growth in the relationship because growth in relationships requires vulnerability. I bet you people who are listening would be astonished if they knew the amount of vulnerability that the three of us in this room have shared with one another. Mm. At different times, in different ways, for different reasons. We've been in our relationships unexpectedly and unaware that it was coming like really vulnerable with each other because that's what life is about and you find yourself there and so that's why you want to be sure that you and the people around you are doing your work because I don't want to be in the deep end of the pool with no swimmers vulnerability is part of the deal and I think that we were threatened with vulnerability for the last two years not inappropriately Right. People on the table may not know that Joe has a paralyzed diaphragm on one side. He was so vulnerable during this time. I, I like I watched him every second. Mm-hmm. And now that we're back out in the world, it's kind of like that's that's on the back burner again. But we were all, what if I get it? What will I do? What where would go? What if I lose my job? What if I get the bad kind? What if I end up at the hospital? Like we've been on the edge of vulnerability for a long time. And I think we're just now, we're carrying all that with us till we're able to shed it. And there's a truth about living that everything makes us vulnerable. Nothing, nothing is guaranteed, right? I mean, there's nothing. And that's where the freedom comes. Yeah. Uh, Surrounding yourself with community and it's people who are willing to witness to the vulnerability that not only that you're sharing, but going through that can help you navigate what will be 
truth and freedom because in in my case uh the points of time when i have let go of outcomes uh have been the most fearful times of my life and the most freeing yep all at the same time all at the same time yeah and in the i know where amanda's in botswana Maybe it's like this in Botswana. I haven't been. I'm glad to receive an invite anytime. Hey, in the United States. What, what, I'm first. Oh, you're okay. After Suzanne goes. Yeah. <laughs> you can send the invitation to both of them. Andy will go. Yeah. So. <laughs> in a heartbeat. Yeah. But in the United States, I mean, we're, I, I felt like as a white cisgender male that if I was vulnerable, I would lose power privilege, et cetera. So trying to figure that out and navigate that is tricky. It's real tricky. Yeah, it's all tricky. It's a very complicated time. And so every question is more complex than it sounds. Mm -hmm. And I feel like every answer, every response is still inadequate and lacking. You go for it, Amanda. Vulnerability is the thing that relationships are built on and it is the thing that holds relationships together is shared vulnerability and thank you amanda for allowing us to be in your community yeah and asking us that question i think that's That's that that should be praised well for an eight to say i want to i want to be vulnerable yeah that's growth that's deep swimming right there Mm -hmm. you're in 10 feet Mm-hmm. All right, well, it's uh, sign-off time. It's time to dismount. So whatever y'all want to say um, to to end our conversation. And thank you, everyone, who joined us online. And if you didn't join us online and you're hearing this on the Anagram Journey podcast, sign up for the table and hop on this things live. I think the thing I want to say is that there is a generosity in people taking time and formulating words around questions that they have about their lives and submitting them to us and to the table and to our podcasts so that we'll answer them. That's a very generous thing to do. Mm -hmm. To say, here's my question, and I'm going to put it out there, and everybody's going to, that listens, is going to hear my question and their response. There's just a lot of generosity in saying, Here's a little piece of my life. If you can glean from it, you're welcome to it. I'm I'm grateful for every question from everybody all the time. And I'm glad you came in when you did. It's a good surprise. Yeah, me too. It's uh yeah. I'm it's great to be here. Yeah. We're gonna do big serious stuff now. Oh, oh yeah. Oh okay. <laughs> well, thank you all again. And uh, see you next time on the table and in the So was that camera on? <laughs> <laughs>